นัมโมวัตสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนัมโมวัตสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนัมโมวัตสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทังธรรมังสังฆังนัมสัIn our monastery, it's been a tradition now for many years that on Christmas Eve, uh, the uh, the abbot invites all the monks and novices around to his uh, cottage for uh, a wee party, and um, so we've just been enjoying each other's company and uh, very pleasant few hours together. Uh, agreeable. Conversation, and after a few glasses of non-alcoholic mulled berry punch, um, the conversation warmed up, and uh, got around to talking about uh, one of the things. Uh, talking about was uh, different approaches to religion. Now, <laughs> you may not think that sounds like a great party topic, but for us, this was radical. And, uh, <laughs> um, Personally, I find it very heartwarming to meet with people, and where there's a sense of shared trust and interest and enthusiasm for for engaging and, and, and discussion about things that really matter, and not just uh, casual concerns. And it was uh, helpful to hear so many different people's perspectives in our community. We obviously, got people from different backgrounds, and different nationalities, different ages. I think. I don't know who the youngest person in the community is. About maybe 23, something like that. 23, 24, 26. He's the youngest one. All oh, right, okay. 26 up to 60, and uh, then you know, all sorts of nationalities, as you know, from New Zealanders. There's a couple of English here, and then there's Americans and Italians and Hungarians, Germans, Czechs, and Slovenian. So all these different cultures and different perspectives. Uh, Ex-communists and ex-fundamentalist Christians, and and just to uh, look together and consider together, uh, what is it this this concern about religion that people have? Somebody was quoting some current theories about that it's uh, it's genetically encoded whether you have a predisposition to towards religion or not, and that was interesting to consider. But one of the things that, uh, when we have these such conversations, one of the things that comes to my mind is, what is it that people are looking for in religion? What are we trying to get out of it? We're all making this effort, sometimes dramatic effort, um, that we call our spiritual life, our our practice. And it seems to me that. Uh, That everybody's really looking for the same thing, more or less, and that is security. Yeah. If we already felt secure, if we already felt safe, if we already felt totally okay, <clears throat> we wouldn't be engaging in all these dramatic efforts. But it's because we don't feel okay, we don't feel safe, we don't really feel secure that uh, we do such practices and we make such kinds of effort. And yet, within that. There's still various degrees. I mean, some people 
will be quite satisfied with a sense of security which comes from a belief system. And uh, you get some ideas that seem to accord with reality as you perceive it, and you grasp those ideas, and that's it for your life. You have these ideas, you use beliefs, and this is, here is where I stand, and that's it. And anybody challenges me, and I'll contradict them, and maybe I'll fight with them. Whereas for other people, uh, such a relative level of security isn't satisfying, for whatever reason. we, We could speculate about the reasons why such a, a relative level of security doesn't satisfy us. But thankfully, for those of us who don't feel gratified with a belief system, there are other approaches uh, to take us further. And uh, the Buddha was aware of this in, in, his, um, in his suttas, that he, the teachings that he gave about encouraging us to, to keep practicing right until you reach the heartwood. Uh, use this image of the the bark and the softwood and the hardwood of the tree to to keep going, keep going. Don't settle for a synthetic or an initial level of gratification or an initial level of satisfaction or security, but keep encouraging, keep arousing yourself to keep going till you reach that which he called nakampati or unshakable, nakampati, unshakable security. And, and this was his realization, and this is what he was talking about, that this is possible. Not a relative level of security that can still be shaken when circumstances, external or internal, change, or somebody comes and contradicts us, or, or we start to lose our memory, or we start to lose our, our physical faculties. Uh, uh, is our sense of security really unshakable, or is it shakable? Well, the Buddha did hold up this possibility of realization of an unshakable level of security and then articulated a path for reaching that. And so our effort in meditation, as I understand it, is very much oriented towards this. We trust in this. We have faith in this. We don't know this when we set out. We don't know this unshakable uh, state of, of security but if we're Buddhists, we have faith in this, we have confidence, we trust in this possibility. And it's very important, uh, I found in my own effort and, and an observation of other people, it's very important to keep this faith alive. To keep this faith alive in this unshakable freedom, this unshakable security. Not to let the faith become overshadowed with complacency, or it might be with doubt, and there's various ways that we can lose our faith, but also not to just uh, settle for an initial level of gratification. You know, like you can read scriptures and hear all sorts of stuff about Buddhism, and, and they are great ideas. I think that personally, I think they're the greatest ideas that have ever come out of human consciousness, uh, but that's not enough. You know, just holding on to great ideas, you know, what happens when your mental faculties fade? And your ideas, you can't remember them anymore. So whatever great ideas you might have about Buddhism, that's not it. Uh, even the, the moral efforts that we make, the keeping the precepts, that can give a level of safety and security and a sense of self-respect. And that's functional, that's a functional act, aspect of the path, but that's not it in itself. Uh, or even concentration meditation exercises. 
can have some very interesting things happen when you focus your attention and, and have some very pleasant, very agreeable, blissful experiences. Uh, things that you could never previously have imagined possible might occur. But that's not it either. Uh, because such concentration can be shaken. Uh, again, you read the texts or talk to teachers who have such abilities, you can see that you can also lose such abilities. You can be very highly attained in the jhanas and then lose them all and uh, with very little wisdom or no wisdom remaining. So just to uh, point out in, on this occasion that that if it occurs to us, as it does to me, that we are looking for security uh, in our spiritual effort, to not settle for an initial level, but to consider what the Buddha called this nakampati, or unshakable security. And to keep our practice alive. There's a risk, there's a real risk in any spiritual practice, any spiritual discipline, that we get used to it, we take it for granted, and then it kind of dies off, and we enter into our meditation with a whole bunch of assumptions about what's going to happen. We've done it before, been there, done that. And a lot of that happens because we are approaching our spiritual life in a very materialistic way. We see the spiritual life as a thing that we do. Religion is a thing. The monastery is a thing. Buddhism is a thing. And it's perfectly understandable that we relate to it because it's a nice thing. I, I think Buddhism is a lovely thing. Well, there are some aspects of it which are not nice things. It's like Buddha images. You know, our Buddha image is a nice thing. But some Buddha images should never have been made. They're not nice things. They're very goofy things. Yeah. Some aspects of Buddha's tradition are nice things, but some of them are not nice things. Yeah. But that's not, surely that's not the point of Buddhism, because no thing, as we understand, uh, uh, beginning of Buddhism, all things are impermanent, all things are unstable. So if we turn Buddhism, if we turn our spiritual practice into a thing, then we, it goes dull on us. Our spiritual life, I think of it as an organism. And our relationship to this organism has to be our like our relationship to a living process. I think this is a helpful way of thinking about our spiritual practice. How alive is it? Are we nourishing it well? Are we looking after it? As we would look after a living organism. Like those trees we've been planting in our, our new property that we, we've just acquired down by the lake. All those trees that have been planted there. These living organisms, those lovely oak trees. Besides all the aspen and alder and, and birch and other trees that we're putting down there, there there's also quite a lot of these lovely, well-developed oak trees. And in planting them, you can treat them as things, and you know you could dig a hole, stick this thing in it, and bang in a post, and kind of wrap a plastic tag around and go off and do the next one. And that's one way of doing it, but there's a good chance that the, the tree will then die. At the moment, they're all alive. But I was down there the other day and I, I looked down the protective tube there and I saw some of them, there was just a hole with this tree with a plug of soil and it just kind of dropped in the hole, no soil around it and the stake was on the wrong side, the prevailing winds in fact did blow a lot of the trees over because the stake wasn't on the right side, the tag wasn't put on the right way. So 
this lovely organism which has the potential to become a great and beautiful oak tree, yeah, whether it does mature into what it, it potentially could be depends on the relationship we have with it. Yeah, when we're planting a, a, a when we're planting this organism, we need to relate to it as a living process. You know, you know, to really feel what's going on there, to how we put the soil and how we relate to the roots. You don't want to be cruel to the roots. You can damage them. You don't also want to just go and get a bucket of freezing cold water out of the lake and throw it in there because that could damage them as well. That's why we took a thermos of some hot water down to kind of warm up the water a little bit, to be kind to the roots. And, and then when you put the stake in, you've got to have the right sort of stake, a really substantial stake for a substantial tree, and you put it on the right side of the tree so the providing winds come, support the tree. And then the right kind of uh, protective guard around it, the one that keeps the bunnies away and keeps the deer away, as beautiful and as lovely as the bunnies are, and as much as we like the deer, they could completely ruin our forest down there. We've got 2,000 trees, they could become 2,000 dead sticks if we don't care for this living organism. And such an image, I find, also works well in the spiritual life, for our inner life, for our meditation. That if we view it as a, as a living process, then we can become agile in our relationship to it. Spiritual agility is a fact that you don't... The, the texts don't tend to talk about it a lot, but I think it's profoundly important. Because if we hold too tightly to the instruction that we receive... As I said, our materialistic thinking can turn our spiritual life, our meditation, into just another thing that we do. And it doesn't necessarily grow well. You can't, you can't force an oak tree to be how you want it to be. You can influence how it goes, depending on where you put the guard, and it's going to grow branches, and it's going to have limbs, and, it can, and leaves, and it's going to put down roots, but you can't force it to be how you want it to be. It's got its own life. And actually, so does our spiritual life. It's got its own way. It's not up to ego, me, personality, me, to determine how this spiritual process unfolds. We can try. And it seems to me that a lot of people bringing their materialistic, uh, forceful, willful attitude into spiritual life, that's what they try to do. They try to force the mind to be a certain way try to force the emotions to be a certain way. Just like many of us have tried to force our bodies to be a certain way. We didn't grow up sitting on the floor. You know, like our Asian brothers and sisters who did grow up sitting on the floor, we didn't. And We've got to be very careful how we influence, how we guide, how we uh, induct our being, our body and mind into the spiritual life. Trying to force our body to be a certain way trying to force our hearts and minds to be a certain way is almost certainly going to take us to a very lifeless uh, experience of the spiritual life. And I don't think it's going to give us the kind of unshakable security that we are hoping for. So relating to our spiritual life as a living organism, as a, as a living, changing, mysterious process... I think can be very skillful, and it it it, it helps us with this agility, uh, a spiritual agility, an agile attitude, so we can adjust depending on what's going on. Meditation can have very different 
uh, we can go through different stages of, of meditation. And uh, in my own thinking about it, I think there's, there are three different modes to meditation. And any one of those modes, we can get stuck. Or we try to miss one, we, we don't develop one of them, well, that we can also miss out. Initially, and I think for a lot of people, uh, meditation starts out as being just relaxation. And that's fine. We need to learn to use the mind to imbue all of our being with a state of ease. And that can also sometimes mean you know, using external things. You, know, you, you go into, into some of these new age shops and you find meditation music and meditation essential oils and, and so on and well, there's nothing wrong with these things. You know, sometimes people get so rigid about their spirituality that they forget that there is a, a level of sensuality which we can't bypass. You know, it's okay to engage sensuality in meditation. However, it is, I think, uh, it does need to be appreciated as an initial stage of meditation. Where we simply learn to relax, learn to be at ease. It can be okay to listen to some nice music, you know, you know, soak in the bath with some essential oils and, and take it easy. And If we can't do that, then to engage in, in what I see as the, the, the second uh, mode of meditation, which is concentration, it's perhaps a little bit risky, actually. Yeah. Uh, concentration techniques are very powerful. There's uh, a lot of teachings around now in the in the West here that have come from the East. Uh, how to focus the mind on the breath, or on a mantra, or on visualization processes, and because we're also forceful and willful, we we can get pretty interesting experiences going. However, if we don't know, if we don't have the agility, that means that when we're losing balance, we can just relax again. If we don't know how to relax, well, sometimes our otherwise noble efforts and concentration can take us further out of balance, which is unfortunate. The technique might be great. The aspiration might be great. But if it's not coming from the right place within us, if it's not balanced, if it's not appropriate then it won't give us the results we're looking for. So uh, relaxation, concentration, I think um, uh, I, I see them as, as perfectly valid aspects of, of meditation. However, I suspect that probably most people who have an inclination towards uh, deep spiritual inquiry can move through those modes of meditation fairly quickly into what, as far as I'm concerned, is best characterized as investigation. So relaxation, concentration, investigation, all of these are different modes of practice which I think we need to uh, develop. We need to know how to relax. We need to know how to concentrate the mind. It's not, it's not okay to attempt uh, deep inner questioning if we don't know how to steady the mind. It's important to be able to say no to the habitual tendencies to wander and, and drift following all the fantasies. Following fantasies and just chilling out, well, that could be part of the relaxation mode of practice. Yeah. But 
it's, there's a certain mediocrity uh, to that level of practice. We need to uh, up the intensity of our attention uh, that we can focus and hold the mind with some degree of steadiness so that when it is right to start to listen to the heart's own deep questions, the heart's our deep concerns about what is really important in life, what really matters, that we've got a steadiness there. We need, we're able to hold the question. Yeah. We can hold the question. And when the question starts to undo us, when the question starts to undermine our assumptions about reality, we don't freak out too much. We will get shaken up by it if they're the real question at the right time, the right way, then we will be thrown into doubt. We will be thrown into questioning. We will be thrown into uncertainty. But this awareness of uncertainty is part of the process of realizing real certainty. We don't have to be afraid of the feeling of insecurity. To become mindful of the feeling of insecurity is part of the process of realizing unshakable security. But if we haven't already got a, an ability to relax, an ability to concentrate, then it's not necessarily wise to ask these deep, undermining questions. So having agility with these different modes of practice, you know, this is a living organism, this is a, a changing, mysterious process that we're engaged in. Not allowing our practice to become just another thing. I'm a Buddhist, I meditate and getting off on the initial feeling of security that comes from that, that won't take us very far, it won't last very long. But to relate to it as a, as a changing process, to, to ask ourselves, what do I need to be doing? You know, is this giving me the ability to accommodate the, the great uncertainty of life? Is my practice, is the effort I'm making, equipping me with the capacity to open up and receive the raw reality of utter insecurity that we're faced with. I was looking at the Buddha image we have up here the other day and, and looking at the Buddha image not so much as the great teacher, which is what I've usually looked at it in the past, as a great teacher sitting there giving out the teachings, telling us, telling me what we should be doing, but see the Buddha as that which is simply there receiving the reality as it impacts on him. Just complete, unobstructed receptivity. The Buddha actually, Arahants actually, enlightened beings actually, are not giving anything. They're just being pure beings. If we call it giving, well, that's what we project onto it. They don't have the sense of giving anything. There's just the heart responding to reality. They're just sitting there receiving for us, we receive, but then we add to it. Yeah. We always add something extra. We add a story to it. We add a drama to it. Yeah. And we complicate life with proliferations. And, and then we become so habituated in adding to life, uh, we develop these personalities which become fixed habits, which we then feel obstructed by. Well, the Buddha saw through all that. He didn't get rid of all that. He didn't have to get rid of anything. None of us have to get rid of anything. But at the level of practice of investigation, what we're doing is seeing the relativity of everything, seeing that our personality is not reliable. And when we're faced with a real dilemma, a real tough dilemma, what should I do with my life? Can my personality sort it out? No way. 
endlessly asking questions. Should I do this? Should I do that? And you go and talk to other people. Should I do this? Should I do that? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Some one person gets all confident and says, yes, you should do that. And then we get off on their confidence for a while. And, and then I, personality me, feels sure for a while. But after a while, that's gone. That wasn't real, unshakable security. That was just another mood. You know, or we feel safe and secure for a while because we've got the idea, I'm trying to do the right thing. You know? And then somebody comes along and says, oh, no, you don't know what you're doing. And then we fall you know, into uncertainty and confusion again. Yeah. The reality is we're faced with one of life's actual dilemmas, the inherent paradox of the conditioned realm. It's like this. It's not sure. It's actually not sure. We actually don't know a lot of the time. Most of the time we don't know really what's going on. But how do we accommodate that? How do we live with that? Well, that takes some preparation. And that's what the spiritual disciplines are about. Is how to equip us with the awareness, the mindfulness, the sensitivity to be able to say, this is what it feels like to not know what to do in this situation. The Buddha would not be intimidated at all by a com- utterly complex, confusing, convoluted situation dilemma that he was faced with. No confusion whatsoever, because there's no resistance. Absolutely, perfectly unobstructed receptivity, it's like this. It's like this. The Buddha's just receiving. And then because the Buddha's heart is so pure, there's a natural response out of compassion. The wisdom receives and sees accurately, and then the heart responds with compassion. That's the nature of the enlightened being. And so for us, in our spiritual exercise, we have to find ways that work for us to help us see through these habits of resisting reality, obstructing reality. So sometimes it's right to just relax, you know, not to, to let go of our armoured uptightness. You know, our shoulders are up around our ears, and I see this sometimes. You know, people start off and in practice then like shoulders are up around their ears and then as the years go by the shoulders come down and, and they feel more centered in their belly and they're coming from a different place yeah. and that's good to see that's always inspiring yeah. a little less fear a little less forcefulness a little more relaxation very important stage of practice yeah. and then concentration being able to hold the mind steady like in a conversation you, you, know, you notice when you're having a conversation with somebody and and somebody's coming up with all this rubbish that you don't go along with at all. And do you have the ability to just hold your mind still and steady and wait until they've lost their wind and then come back with something useful? Or is it kind of you've got to interfere? You know? If there's some concentration, some modicum of samadhi, then you're able to just hold the intensity until it's the right time. So having some relaxation, having some concentration, but then recognizing that these are all initial stages of practice, then finding our way into investigation, really valuing this wonderful mind that we have to think. Unfortunately, many people approach meditation, they get so hooked on the level of relaxation or the level of concentration that they demonize the thinking mind. They think that thinking is wrong. Okay, thinking can cause us problems, but we don't want to project onto thinking responsibility for our suffering. It's the compulsive thinking that's the problem. 
Not thinking in and of itself. Thinking is a wonderful tool. You know, thinking is what makes us different from most of the other animals. You know, this sophisticated ability we have to discriminate, to discern, to investigate. That's why the Buddha said, said to the son, his son Rahula, you know, mindful, wise reflection is the mirror for the mind. Or when I was living with Ajahn Tate, he asked the monks, you use a mirror to see your eye with, what does the mind use to see itself? It uses wisdom, it uses wise reflection, it uses this wonderful intelligence we have to consider. And so to ask the right questions at the right time undoes the tangle of deluded self. So at investigation, I feel also, in my experience and observation with this, is we can't just be hammering away at interesting questions because there still needs to be an agility in our practice. Uh, I, uh, I came across some interesting questions very early on in my own uh, efforts in meditation that, that showed me that you could, the mind could become very deep and very still and take it to very interesting places just by asking Questions like, who is aware? Who is aware that the mind is peaceful? can take you to another level of peacefulness. But if we're not agile, we turn this again into just another thing that we're doing and hammer away at it. We don't have agility. We can go out of balance there too. So I would suggest that in the mode of practice that could be identified as investigation, there is... There is a, an assertive effort that needs to be made, but there's also a yielding effort that needs to be made. And if we're agile, we know. We know when it's time to be assertive, when it's time to yield. It's like that lovely exercise that they teach in Tai Chi sometimes, which I haven't done for many years, but uh, pushing hands where you know, a couple stand opposite each other and you hold your hand up together, you touch one palm is touching the back of the other person's hand and then the assertive energy is when you go forward and then you turn and then the yielding is when you go back and, and you've got two people you've got to just gently keep touching and the effort it takes is the effort to be embodied and centred so that all of you is going forward and making the assertive effort and then all of you is yielding coming back yeah. a very good exercise yeah, to learn in the body being assertive and yielding, and the time for that. Well, likewise, in our investigation and practice, asking these undermining questions, there is a time when we, we need to, to make that kind of effort which challenges assumptions. Maybe it happens that you've got some really good things going in practice, Maybe some things are are really clear. If we're asking the right kind of questions the right way and the right time, we would perhaps say something like, who's feeling confident right now? Because confidence naturally comes from right practice. Clarity, confidence, energy. But if we're not careful, if we're hooked on the level of concentration practice and just getting off in the good feeling that comes from being concentrated, which is a serious addiction and a, and a real risk in practice, and what, quite frankly, I think most people are doing. I think most people are actually hooked on that, just trying to get a good feeling out of practice. Yeah. 
which is one of the reasons why I'm not so confident about teaching meditation retreats anymore because I don't believe in what most people, I think most people are up to. Uh, trying to get a good feeling, trying to become secure by forcing their mind to be how they think it should be. But when there is some confidence, some steadiness, some clarity to be willing to be able to ask this kind of question, who is feeling good about practice? To dare to ask that. And that's a a very assertive sort of effort to be making, an investigation. Ask it too much in the wrong way at the wrong time, we can undermine the confidence, and that's the time to be able to then yield, to pull back again. So it's not sure, our meditation. The the idea that we might get out of books or from listening to certain teachers or teachings that... uh, that, you, that you're supposed to be feeling sure about your meditation, you're supposed to be feeling sure about your investigation. Uh, I don't feel so sure about that. I personally don't trust that. That there can be a healthy sense of feeling insecure. Getting lost in insecurity to the point where we lose our confidence, lose our faith, that's not it. But not to get stuck at the first two stages of meditation, at relaxation and concentration, where there's this feeling of, I really know what I'm doing. I'm getting somewhere in my practice. I am sure. And those other wallies, they don't know what they're doing. They're all still caught up in doubt and whatever. To be careful about that. So if um, we have such agility, if we relate to our spiritual practice, if we relate to our meditation as a living organism, then it's uh, my confidence uh, that that when it's a time to change the kind of effort we're making, we'll be able to do it. And no dilemma, no paradox, no conundrum will be too much for us. If we are faced with a real difficult decision to be made, well, no, is this the time to relax and just let go of the question? Is this the time to steady the mind, stop following all the doubting and questioning? Or is this the time to ask the questions that really open us up to the actual insecurity of our situation, our predicament? To receive it, to really feel this is uncertain. I really don't know what I should do with my life. I don't even know whether I'm going to be alive tomorrow. Now that's really scary. But if we have this kind of agility in practice, then we won't be too intimidated by that. We might be a little bit intimidated by that, but that's okay. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.